Well, one of the serious things that, of course, that is happening in the world today are the tragedies that are going on everywhere. And it seems like one disaster outdoes the previous one. And, of course, we've had the massive earthquake in China this last week, and tens of thousands of people died, if not hundreds of thousands. And yet it is small in comparison to some of the ones that have been in the past, and we know we're going to have much more massive ones in the future. And the uh, situation in Burma with our people in the Delta region of the Irrawaddy, of course, is uh, quite uh, uh, tragic as well. Uh, the news report this morning said they expect, or at the present time, there are 133,000 people dead or missing. And yet some of those typhoons or cyclones that have gone through that area in Bangladesh have killed up to half a million people in times past. And yet uh, the 133,000 at the moment is only a minimal figure because not only did it kill the people in the uh, flood surge that came up the estuary, um, but it's also wiped out the 60% or more of the rice crop. And so they're not going to have very much food. In fact, they're already running out of food. I received an email from our minister up in Burma, Thomas Tile Ho, uh, just day before yesterday. He was finally able to make contact with us. Uh, making contact in or out of Burma is never the easiest, even in the best of times. Uh, we have to make an arrangement. Uh, Mr. Jonathan Manair will remember how he used to contact uh, Burma too. And, uh, and how we would meet him and so forth when up in Thailand there because there just wasn't the communications that we're used to today, the HTTP or whatever it was there Mr. Meredith was reading out. And, uh, and they just do not have access to those things. But Thomas uh, did make contact. He said he was able to contact Mrs. Sole Bay, uh, whom actually is his sister or his half-sister. Uh, Jonathan and I could not remember exactly uh, but a very close uh, family member there uh, who married Mr. Soleil Bay uh, some years back. And um, uh, they reported that everybody is safe uh, from the, the uh, cyclone. The cyclone didn't damage any of their homes, even though it was only about 35 miles away or so. Uh, it just rattled the, the, the foundations of the building, but everything was safe there. However, uh, the big problem now is is that the refugees that have survived from further south who do not have anywhere to live, have no homes left to live in, everything has been obliterated, there's no food, they're all starting to move north and they're moving into the towns and villages of where some of our people are and there's, mass, and there's looting going on and people are just absolutely desperate and just you know craving to get whatever they can. And it just is a perhaps a forerunner of what we're going to see even in our own countries when food supplies start to go dwindle and people start to go hungry. You, I remember we had a, a flood in Australia in 1974. We were in it. Um, my son Robert is over here right now. He was just a couple of months old and I remember the water coming into our house and I was carrying him out. We were able to get to higher ground but in a matter of hours, every supermarket store was completely wiped of every food, uh, piece of food that you could buy. People were just going in and stocking up on, on uh, uh, trolley loads of, of uh, food stocks as much as they can get. There was no bread. There wasn't anything. And that's just a, a little foretaste of what is going to happen on a massive scale. But uh, our people are safe. But... Uh, the big problem is, and, and you may, may be interested to know this, you know, the, the, the Burmese government has been very reluctant to help those people in the disaster. And you think, why would they do that? Why would they withhold aid from their own people? But what you haven't been reading in the newspapers is that the Burmese government, you know, well, what we need to understand, uh, Burma or Myanmar is made up of quite a number of different ethnic groups. And it brings to mind the scripture that Christ um, gave in Matthew 24, when brother would be against brother and nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And the Burmese people have been in conflict with the uh, Kaya people uh, for many, well, probably a couple hundred years or more. 
um, the the uh, Sole Bay and his people there, uh, the which are in the Irrawaddy, and over on the east side of Burma on the Thailand border, uh, they are. I said Kaya. They actually Karen. I'm sorry about it. Kaya is another state in um, Burma, um, but the Karen people. Um, have been in conflict, in conflict with the Burmese, and half the people in the Irrawaddy area where that cyclone went through were Karen. So what better way to eliminate your enemy than just let the cyclone take as many as they can and you not give them any help? So uh, that is one of the reasons why they did not go and, and, and give the aid as rapidly, as quickly as you know we all think they should have. It was just a... Uh, a political move there to bolster their own um, um, advantage um, position. And so I was very, very sad to see the, the lack of concern and empathy that people have towards each other. And certainly when we see things like that, it only helps us cry out all the more for God's kingdom to come and uh, for that whole attitude to be turned around. At the moment, as I said, the people are safe but it's the aftermath of what can happen, whether disease begins to take hold, there's dead bodies everywhere and they're not being cleaned up. I don't know if you've seen some of the footage uh, of the bloated bodies on the riverbanks and in the trees. It's just ugly to see that sort of thing. And uh, certainly it's just uh, been on a massive scale there in that sense. So Mr. Rajan Moses is right now uh, applying for a visa to get to Burma uh, whether they grant that or not uh, remains to be seen. Uh, but next week, he and uh, Arias Nusantara are actually going to Maesot in Thailand, which is right on the Burmese border. And uh, we are going to take some uh, financial support and some physical support, maybe food and clothing, and some of the members in Thailand will be able to go across into Burma and then travel up to Rangoon or Yangon and then take uh, the boat down the river It'll be day and night uh, travel, and hopefully I'll be able to deliver that. We need to pray for them that they don't get robbed or mugged or uh, taken advantage of on the way uh, by uh, the situation that has uh, arisen there. So please continue to keep them in your prayers. Well, the work in the other parts of uh, Asia, Southeast Asia and Australasia are coming along. We have two graduates uh, that are going to be graduating this first year at the ceremony on Monday. Unfortunately, they're not here, but we do have a little video of them, so I hope we can show the ones that are here uh, the excitement they express and feel about the lessons and the classes and the courses they've been doing. And, um, and it's been re really, really good to uh, see the enthusiasm that they've put into it. Of course, they're part-time workers at the office, uh, we especially brought them in for that very purpose, to help train them uh, to be used in the work, hopefully, as time goes on. Uh, we have some other programs that we um, are implementing for the growth of the work. And uh, for the conference this coming week, uh, we have Mr. Tanner is here from Brisbane, Mr. Gill from the office, my son Robert, and Mr. Penman from New Zealand uh, will be here as well. So um, we certainly appreciate all your prayers. And we do appreciate all the work that the uh, headquarters church supplies and, and the support that they give us. Well, brethren, we are in a period of time right now between Passover and Pentecost. Uh, if you check the chronology in the scriptures in Exodus, you'll find that next Tuesday is the 15th day of the second month um, after the Israelites left, left Egypt. And on that day... Um, there was a little problem that uh, the people of Israel had with Moses uh, or specifically with God. And then God gave them a test. And that was the test regarding the keeping of the Sabbath. You know, I think you all remember the story there. That's not what I want to talk about today. But very shortly after that, and that, that event probably happened uh, within the next you know, seven days uh, from now or, or at least from next week. Uh, the way the days fall on the calendar is not the same as it was when the exodus happened, of course. However, right after God showed them the miracle of the manna, and uh, uh, there was another event that took place, and that's what I do want to talk to you about today, because it has a great bearing on and relevance to all of us right here now and 
our lives in the future as members in the Church of God. Before I tell you about that, though, I want to tell you something, a little story, some uh, uh, history of my family, which also has a bearing on what happened here in Exodus chapter 17. Quite a number of years ago, more than my wife and I care to remember, um, our son Robert was born, and I, we named him Robert Clifford. And uh, I took him home, and my grandfather was still alive at that time, and I sat him on my granddad's knee, and because his name was also Robert Clifford, and uh, I presented Rob to him. He doesn't remember this, though. And uh, my granddad said to me, he said, well, this Robert Clifford is not going to be here very much longer. But he said, this Robert Clifford is going to be around for a long time to come. So he's still here, so that's great. But the reason I tell you this is because right now we're involved in a war in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places in the Middle East. And there have been quite a number of Marines, soldiers that have been killed. And I have one of my own family members that was killed in Afghanistan. My granddad was born in 1895. In 1894, his uncle, who was named Robert Clifford, died as a result of the Anglo-Afghan Wars at the end of the 1870s into the 1880s. And uh, my granddad's uncle, Robert Clifford, was fighting up there as a soldier. And as a result of some of the wounds he experienced uh, at that time, they were repatriating him to England. And he died on the ship on the way back home, so they buried him at sea somewhere. I don't know where it was, in the Indian Ocean or the uh, Mediterranean. Uh, but my son over here has been named after that my granddad's uncle, born in 1860. So we'll go back a few years. And the reason I mention that is because that was a result of a prophecy that is given here in Exodus chapter 17. Not a prophecy with my grandfather's family or my family, but a prophecy that God gave regarding the people of Israel. And I want to go through this with you just a little bit because, it's, as I said before, it has an enormous bearing on every one of us in this room here today. Robert Clifford, the original one, was uh, born in Lincolnshire in the United Kingdom. He was part of a very powerful um, English family that controlled all the northeast of, uh, or rather the north, of, um, of England. And uh, uh, the estate went back to um, the, uh, the Skipton Castle that was uh, in Yorkshire. Uh, it was granted to him, uh, to the family, I should say, back in the early 1300s. Uh, the very first uh, Lord of Skipton was a man by the name of Robert Clifford. So the history goes back a long time. Unfortunately, Robert Clifford was killed in the battle. Another Robert Clifford got killed in, in fighting. Uh, he was killed fighting or at uh, Bannockburn uh, with the Scots on the second day of the battle that took place up there, England trying to keep uh, control, but uh, unfortunately that was not to be the case, um, at that time at least anyway. That's just a little bit of history of my family, warmongers. <laughs> I, had, I had another um, family member who was killed by the Lord Mayor of London back in 1381 as well. Well, that's another story. We won't go, to, go into that one. But in any case, we find back here in, um, in Exodus chapter 17 a prophecy that is affecting our countries right now. Uh, up until the early, about three or four days ago, this, just this last week, there had been something like 400 and I just forget, the 427 Americans uh, have died in battle in Afghanistan. Um, back in the Anglo-Afghan Wars of 1880, 2,500 British soldiers were killed. 
uh, in some of those battles. But God says here in Exodus 17, as Israel is journeying, they just left Egypt. It's been a whole month, um, actually five weeks and maybe a little bit more than that, after departing from Egypt, after God performed those tremendous miracles. In the early part of chapter 17, they contend with Moses, you find in verse 2, because there wasn't any water. You know, we won't go through the story there, but um, God performed the miracle for them. But then in verse 8, something else happened. And this has, this is what I'm bringing out here, that this has a bearing on all of us right now. And we need to understand about this, as you'll see in a moment. God says something very important about this event. He says in verse 8, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, and Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. We'll come back to some of these scriptures a little bit later, but I just want to do this so you can understand the events that took place. In verse 14, And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recounted in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, called its name, The Lord is my banner, or perhaps the Lord is my flag. And he goes on to say in the next verse, For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. There's a prophecy here that God said there was going to be war with these people from generation to generation. And brethren, that war is still continuing. And as I mentioned, my granddad's uncle died in one of those wars with perhaps these Amalekites up in Afghanistan. We're fighting with them over in the Middle East right now. And what is the latest figure? Over 4,000 American soldiers have died since 2003. And many other thousands, 30,000, they're not even sure, 30,000 to 100,000 have been injured or maimed, not just Americans, but others as well. Now, this verse here in verse 16, in some of the other translations, it says, They have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. Therefore, the Lord says, I will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. So there's uh, perhaps a different way to actually look at what verse 16 is saying here. Not that God has um, made an oath or sworn, but Amalek has raised his fist against the people of God and against the throne of God or the throne of the Lord. And God says, since you've done that, I'm going to be in conflict with you from generation to generation. Now, I want to take you through very quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because there's something more important that we need to cover. But in Deuteronomy chapter 25, as Israel is coming to the place where they're about to cross over and only a month from or right at the end of this uh, period of time when Moses is reiterating the law for Israel and reminding them of things that have happened, and they're about to cross the Jordan in a very short time from that now, Moses mentions something. Now, we have the fourth commandment. It was given in Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus 20, God says, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And we're doing that today. We're remembering what God said we were to do. And we don't have a lot of problem with that. But here in, in, in Deuteronomy 26, or 25 and verse 17, God also says, I've got something else that I want you to remember. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way 
as you were coming out of Egypt. Now I wonder how many of us remember this. How often do we remember it? Maybe once a year if the story is read at Passover time or unleavened bread or maybe years go by and we think, oh yeah, there was a skirmish, little skirmish with the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt. But God put a little emphasis on this and he says, you remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Now, this is one of the characteristics of the Amalekites. They were terrorists. And they would attack when people weren't looking. They'd come up from behind when you were least expecting it. Most of the wars in ancient times, I was reading about the, the uh, conflict at the Bannockburn, and, um, and, of course, they let everybody know, you know, if you don't move out of here by such and such a time, 12 o'clock, we're coming in. And uh, the wars were organized, and, the, and oftentimes the armies faced each other, and they knew what was going to happen, but not with the Amalekites. They were surprised attacks. We're going to take advantage of you, and especially the civilians, not just the soldiers. We'll destroy the civilians. And as he says there, they attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers, you know, perhaps the old people that you know, just had a little difficult keeping up. Uh, when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. And you uh, th think about the circumstances back in ancient uh, Egypt as they were traveling, um, or the Isra Israelites as they were traveling. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your en enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given to you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget now, do we forget, or have we forgotten, or do we remember what God did to Amalek? We'll come back to that a little bit later. But just to give you a, a very brief history, and I cannot cover it all, what, did, what happened with Amalek? Did they, and were they, destroyed totally, or their name blotted out? As we come back here, or maybe we should just go back to Genesis 26 or 36 very quickly, just to show you who the Amalekites really were. This is in um, uh, Genesis chapter 30, uh, 36. Now, God spends a whole chapter here giving the entire genealogy of the people of Edom, the sons of Esau. And uh, you can go through and diagram it all out if you like sometime but in verse 2 it says Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan Genesis 36 and verse 2 Ada the daughter of Elon the Hittite Aholibama the daughter of Anna and the, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite and Bashemath an Ishmaelite's daughter the sister of Nabajoth now Ada bore uh, Zilphaz and so we find here is Esau's firstborn. Eliaphaz, in verse 11, we find, um, decides he's going to get married, but he also has a concubine. And the concubine, her name, it says in verse 12, is Timna. And she bears him a son, as it says there, verse 12, Esau's son, she bore Amalek. Uh, to Eliphaz, and these were the sons of Ada. The Amalekites came from the area of what the Bible often refers to as Mount Seir, and it makes a distinction between the people of Mount Seir and Eden. Sometimes it, they're all one of the same, but specifically the Amalekites came from the area of Mount Seir, as it says in verse 20. These were the sons of Seir the Horite, who inhabited the land, and it mentions their children there. And in verse 22, the sons of Lotan were Horai and Heman, and Lotan's sister was Timna. So Timna was a Horite, which I understand is a, a part of the Hivite uh, Canaanite peoples there. And uh, Amalek is from that area and begins to become very powerful, a very powerful chief among the, the uh, uh, Edomite people to the point that Really, he becomes the, uh, the main leader, and the prophecies in Numbers chapter 23 tend to indicate that as well. 
But let's go on a little bit further in time over to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Or 1 Samuel chapter 15, I should say. 1 Samuel 15. We're all familiar with this story of Saul. Samuel comes down to Saul and he says, look, I want you to go to war with Amalek. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord and thus say, verse 2, to the Lord of hosts, I will punish what Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him on the way when he came up from Egypt. And, you know, sometimes we get a little impatient that God doesn't answer our prayers quickly or take care of the problem uh, as in, in, the, in, the, in the amount of time that we would think he should. But here we are, what, almost 400 years later, and we read here in verse 3, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. He says, I'm going to punish Amalek for what he did to Israel when you came out of Egypt 400 years later. You know, it teaches us to have a little bit of patience and trust God that he will deal with the problems. And when he says, vengeance is mine, says the eternal, I will repay. You know, sometimes we think things are done to us. We get offended. We get upset. Someone stands on our toes Maybe we, you know, wonder about it for a little while and think, well, I wish this person would repent or we'll go to the minister and tell him, why don't you do something about it? Uh, but we want, to, we want to get back and sometimes it doesn't happen right away. So we'll go begin to talk about that incident. We'll begin to run that person down. We'll begin to maybe a character assassinate. Well, what happens then is really we're the ones taking vengeance. Maybe there was a genuine offense that took place. But we need to trust God and leave it in his hands and let him take care of it. When we try to do something about it, God says, hey, there's not much I can do now because you've done my job for me. And it wasn't a very good job at that. <laughs> and we've got to learn that patience to trust God to take care of difficulties like that. There may be lessons that we have to learn as well rather than jump in where we shouldn't. But God decided through Saul, that he was going to punish Amalek. He says in verse 3, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman and infant and nursing child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. And we know Saul didn't do it. He didn't carry through with it. And as it says in verse 7, So Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. Saul didn't carry through with the instructions that had been given to him by Samuel. Well, as we come down another 600 years in history, we find the Amalekites are still around. Down in the time of the Persian Empire, over here in uh, Esther chapter 3, book of Esther and chapter 3 we find that the Amalekites had migrated out away from the uh, land of Canaan or the south of the land of Canaan and in the area of Eden and now a number of them were living up in the uh, old Assyrian Babylonian area which was now controlled by the Persian people uh, we find here in in Esther let me uh, find it here in chapter 3 and verse 1 notice this and after these kings now over in uh, numbers it says that Amalek was going to be the chief of nations or going to be leaders because they weren't the, the chief of the world's um, empires and kings but they were chief among the Edomites there's no question about that and they were a, 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 had a, a leadership quality about them and we find here in Esther chapter 3 that King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. He became very powerful in the kingdom at that time. And all the king's servants, verse 2, were within, that were within the king's gates, bowed and paid homage to Haman. He was promoted. He was important. He was basically worshipped. For so the king had commanded concerning him 
but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. And when in verse five, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. And uh, then it goes on to say here in verse six that he disdained to lay hand upon Mordecai alone, for they had told him the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. This was ethnic cleansing on a massive scale. We're going to eradicate all these people. And this has been the mentality of um, uh, 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 the Amalek or Amalekites, uh, which is in their nature. That's what they tried to do. When Israel came out of Egypt, we don't want these people going up to the promised land. Let's put a stop to it right now. Haman, who was a descendant of, as, as we read it there in um, verse 1, was a descendant of Agag. An Amalekite, and he had risen to a prominent position in the in the empire, and now he's determined he's going to once again destroy the Jews or God's people. If he'd have done that, he would have Satan would have succeeded in destroying the line of David, and therefore Christ would not have been born. Uh, that was probably not in uh, Agag's uh, mind, but certainly in in, in uh, Satan's. But it's interesting to note. I don't know if you noticed on the news just this past week, last Wednesday, that here we find that Mordecai said, I am not going to bow down to this Amalekite. And we had Queen Elizabeth go to Turkey. And what did she do? Well, in the past, she's been down to the Vatican. King Henry would not have approved, I can assure you of that. But when she went to visit the Pope, she put herself in submission to the pontiff, put herself under his authority. She was the one that had to wear black while he wore white. Now, just this week, she went down to Turkey and she submitted herself to Allah. And she went into the, the green mosque and put on the, took her shoes off and put on the, the scarf, special scarf she had to have. And, I mean, at the head of the Church of England and yet she goes over there and says, I will put myself under. If Mordecai was there, I know what he would have done. There's no way I'm going to do that. And yet here we find the monarch of Israel has come to the place now where they're pre pre prepared to put themselves under a, a foreign uh, authority. And we see the demise of Israel happening before our very eyes and the world doesn't recognize it. It's a nice thing to do. But... It's the end of the line. Over here in Psalm chapter 83, Psalm chapter 83, there's another prophecy given about the end time concerning Amalek. And we'll just read it quickly here, beginning in verse 4. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. We've heard those terms. Let's drive them into the Mediterranean. Let's destroy the, the, the nation of Judah. Well, there's a been attacks on Britain. There's been attacks on the United States. Um, there are more people who attend mosque in England now than go to the Church of England on a Sunday. Uh, it's, everything is being reversed. And one of the, the, uh, the ideas of jihad is to, um, to develop the Islam religion so it will take over and control the enemies. But... Uh, uh, that's for another time. But here it says, let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Now, that's what God says was to happen with Amalek. Don't remember. He bought his name out. And the attitude on their part, being inspired by Satan, is let's destroy God's people. Let them be a nation no more. Let's not let not Israel exist because God's whole promise and his plan goes through Israel. And then he goes on to say here. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarenes, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek. So Amalek is mentioned here, here again. Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, um, have joined with them and they have helped the children of Lot. So what is Satan attempting to do? He wants to destroy the covenant people. He wants to destroy the people of Israel. It doesn't stop there. Amalek hasn't finished what he is 
attempting to do. And the story of Amalek is right throughout the scriptures. And why is it that God says over in Deuteronomy 25, remember what Amalek did to you? Why does God want us to remember Amalek? Well, let's go over here to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And read what the Apostle Paul says about all of us in God's church. As he's writing here in verse 32, of course, he's just reminded everybody, make sure you don't forget the Sabbath. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And then he comes down to verse 32 of Hebrews 10, and he says, but recall the former days. Or we could say, in some of the other translations put it, remember the former days. Or don't forget or don't ever forget the former days. Or think back on what happened. Constantly remember these things. Oh, I'm just quoting there some of the different translations of this uh, particular verse. You can look them up for yourself. Don't forget this, Paul says. Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated. Now, what we're talking about here is when Egypt, when Israel came out of darkness, the darkness of Egypt, and into the truth of God as he's going down to Mount Sinai and he's beginning to reveal to them his truth, his commandments, his way of life. That's what God did with us when we were called. And he is, Paul is saying here, what I want you to do is don't forget what happened to you when you first came to understand the truth. That is vitally important. Recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. You know, it's not easy to come into God's church. It's not easy to come into the truth. It wasn't easy for Israel to move out of Egypt and to go ahead towards the promised land. There were trials, there were ups and downs, the difficulties and the tests that they went through. And, and yet Paul says, you remember when you came to understand some of these things, it was an exciting time when you found out who Israel was, when you found out you weren't going to heaven when you died, when you learned about the resurrection, when you found out what born again is really means, that God doesn't want us to eat all these unclean foods, that he's interested in our well-being and our health, and that we don't keep Christmas and Easter and all those, and, and, and we learn about God's holy days. You know, that, that's exciting. But it's counterbalanced with the struggles because Satan doesn't want you to leave this world. It may be, and as we go on to read here a little bit further, he says struggles and sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by the reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Maybe we lost our job because of the Sabbath. I remember I did. Told my boss at the place where I worked, I'm going off to keep the holy days this, uh, this next week. I was a bit unwise waiting to the very end. He says, <laughs> well, wisdom comes with age. <laughs> and mistakes. <laughs> and he said, no, you cannot have the time off. And I said, look, it's, it, it's, it, I'm doing it. I'm going. Bye. And he says, okay, come in here. Here's your final paycheck. And that was it. Never saw them again. And, uh, and so, um, as, as he goes on to say here, um, in, in verse 34, you had compassion on me and, and, and talks about the spoiling of your goods. You know, maybe losing out. Maybe having to step backwards for a while. Maybe. But you see, the truth is so much more valuable and precious than anything this world can ever offer. And he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. So Paul talks about the difficulty. He talks about going back and remembering the trials that you went through. Don't never forget those, the battles that you had. You know, when we come back here to Exodus chapter 17, I'll be coming, you might want to put a little marker in there because I'll come back here on and off as we go through this. Just let's have a look at what, what Paul says here regarding the trials that Israel had as they were fighting the Amalekites here in chapter 17. It's interesting to read the 
events here, not just the words, but a little bit, think about the background. Verse 9 of chapter 17. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now here Amalek is a nation that has been prepared for war. Their men had been tried and tested in battle. They knew what they were doing. They were confident. You think about Joshua being said, told by Moses, hey, you go get some men, we'll go fight these guys. Because Joshua had been in Egypt, he'd been training for warfare all his life. No, he'd been making bricks without straw. <laughs> they were in. Here's a man that hadn't been to war at all, and he's going out to fight an enemy that is so far superior to him. And I think it would be me. I would say, hang on a second, Moses. <laughs> I'm staying home. And, you know, there's a, there's a rock over here I'm going to get behind. I'm not going to fight these guys because there's no way I can win. You know, this was an unwinnable battle, fighting a, a standing army by a, a group of people who had never been involved in conflict. They'd been slave people. They'd been under uh, servitude. And yet Joshua is asked to do this. He says, you go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And we know the story there. Moses is holding his arms up. He's holding the rod. You know, just try it sometimes. I'm not sure how heavy that staff Moses had was, but, you know, just to hold your arms up for a little while without anything in them. <laughs> They get tired. And that's what happened to Moses. And every time his arms dropped, Israel were losing. Every time he put his arms up, they won. And of course, that's why Moses in verse 17 is able to say, Moses built an altar and called it its name, the Lord is my banner. Because right above Moses was that staff, was that banner. And it was that banner that protected the people of Israel. You know, in, the, in our country today, in Australia, here in the United States, in Canada, you know, we had a banner that protected us. But, you know, that banner has now been taken down. In all our law courts, they're told, you get God's law out of this place. And we're not going to win any more wars. We're going to be like these Amalekites or these uh, Israelites here, that when that protection was taken away, the war was lost. And it has to be held up if we're going to win any battles, and I'm afraid with that, without it being held up, there's nothing we do. We're, we're vulnerable, and uh, we're not going to win those battles. We're going to see the end of Israel will be very, very soon. And California has just passed this new law, and uh, even some of the judges were uh, upset at uh, the way things went. But um, uh, we're going to see Satan's way of life the way of life of Amalek start to pervade our life and it's what we've been used to and our freedoms, all of those are going to be taken away very, very quickly. Now, for us, brethren, we need to think about this, about holding up our hands. I want to take you to Second Timothy very quickly here. Second Timothy and um, in, in the New Testament where Paul is encouraging Timothy as to what he should... I'm sorry, first, uh, first Timothy, chapter 2. Second chapter is what I meant to say there. First Timothy, chapter 2. Timothy says here, or Paul says to Timothy in verse 1, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men. And we are not to, to forget the lesson of what happened to Israel and what happened with Moses and the battle and the Amalekite attack. And here Paul is admonishing or, or, or instructing Timothy or exhorting him, as it says, that supplication, prayers, intercession, and the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are authority. You know, God is showing the respect that we must have for government and for, for God's government and the authority that he has there and in, that he's instilled and invested in his people and in his church and as we come down, it says in verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And then in verse 8, he says, Therefore, 
I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, God does want us, and the lifting up of holy hands is a reference to constantly praying. And maybe you can do that at times. That's what Moses had to do. He had to have his hands, her and Aaron had to stand beside him and hold his hands up constantly for Israel to win. And if we let our hands drop down, spiritually speaking, and we cease praying, you know, we don't have that protection anymore. We remove ourselves away from God and that banner that Moses talks about in, in Exodus chapter 17. And without wrath and doubting. What happened? You read chapter 17 and verse 1 to 8 or whatever it is there. And that's what happened to Israel. They began to doubt. They said, where's the water, Moses? You've brought us out here to die in the wilderness. We don't think we're going the right way. It's been a big mistake. And what's God doing for us? And they were ready to you know, murder Moses in the wilderness. They are ready to stone me, he said. They're going to lynch him. And they doubted. And that doubt then turned into wrath. And we need to think about this in terms of our, our calling. Remember, Amalek, remember when you were first illuminated. Remember where God has placed us, that we have a job and a responsibility to do. And we can only do that if we lift up our hands to God and we constantly stay close to him. Because if we don't, Amalek is going to put those doubts in our mind. He's going to cause us to get angry with ourselves, our husband, our wife, with the ministry, with the church, things not going right, whatever. You know, Satan is the accuser, and he will come up with any excuse that he, you can think of to turn things around to have that event happen. And without holding our hands up constantly and being positive about what God is doing in our lives, remember when we were first illuminated the excitement and yet the trials, and yet God is going to deliver us. Over here in Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter um, 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Just like Amalek ensnared those people of Israel as he came up and he, he attacked those who were weak um, at, the, at, the, at the end or who were trailed, who were tired. We better make sure, brethren, that we don't get tired of doing God's work. We've got to make sure that we are not the stragglers like those who lost their lives, that we're not the stragglers in God's church. We better stay up with what's going on. We better stay with the rest, you know, with the momentum that is being created. And as we go forward to preach the gospel and go on television and whatever we're doing as far as trying to get that message out. But if we're not praying for it, if we're down the end or, you know, lagging behind or are not zealous and not keeping up, then just like those Amalekites who picked off the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, we, we too are going to picked up, be picked off as well. So he says, the sin that does easily, so easily beset us. I hope you're getting the, 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 the equation here, that the Amalekites that we're fighting are not the ones over in the Middle East. They're not the ones that Moses was fighting down there as they came out of Egypt. But the Amalekite and the, the Agag that we're up against is Satan and sin. And every day, brethren, we have that battle. And it's a battle we can't win on our own. You know, as I said, Joshua wasn't trained for this battle. We were not trained to fight the spiritual Amalekites. We can't do it on our own. It was Christ who was there with Israel who fought the battles and won the battle when Moses' hands were held high. And he's the one that's going to do that for us as long as we stay close to him. Well, because of Israel's wrath and doubting, as we read in Exodus 17, they complained about the lack of water. They were ready to stone Moses. God did perform the miracle and give them water, of course, of course, but he had to teach them some lessons. There was some correction. 
And of course, that Amalekite attack was part of that lesson. But we read here in Hebrews chapter 12, and it's interesting in verse 3, he says, For consider whom he endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged. And that's what happened to those Israelites. They were the tired, they were the weary, they were the strugglers, or stragglers, I should say. And we need to be careful we don't get discouraged and weary in doing God's work. God is going to be working for all eternity. And we better enjoy that work. We better ask God to give us that enjoyment and see the vision of how important it is and how everybody, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul said that God wants everyone to be in his family and all men to be saved. Well, as we come down to verse 12, Paul says to to, to, to the church here in verse 12, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down. Now Moses' hands were getting tired. And he needed that help to be, hold the hands up and the feeble knees. You know, he had to sit on the rock. He couldn't continue to stand there. And to make straight paths for your feet so that which is lame may not be turned out of the way or dislocated, but rather be healed. And he says, pursue peace with all men and holiness without, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. And by this many become defiled. Then he brings in the Amalekites, or the Edomites, I should say here. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He just never got that back he gave he sold it gave it away virtually and Paul is using this to show that if we don't keep our arms held high if we don't have them spiritually strengthened by Christ then we're in danger of losing that reward and we have seen many brethren many your friends my friends who have come into the truth who have become weary and Amalek has picked them off because they just haven't had that endurance and they've become discouraged and they haven't had their eyes on the focus, on the vision that God has given to us. You know, we do have an incredible vision. We've all been given it. It's in God's word. You know, I'm not talking about some supernatural thing that's happened before our eyes. I've spoken to many people who have had those sort of things happen. But right here, this box that you've got that Mr. McNair talked about, that contain, if we get our noses into that and we read it and study it and we see the promises that God has given, then nothing should deter us from getting our eyes off what is up ahead. And so he says, make sure you strengthen the hands which hang down. Well, let's go on a little bit further here and have a look at another aspect of what's happening here over in um, Deuteronomy chapter 4 I mentioned earlier on perhaps I should have mentioned that uh, this scripture in the context of the banner that Moses was holding up and the protection that is given to us when we have Christ as our protector and our banner this is in uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4 and in verse He says, but you who held fast to the Lord, your God, are alive today, every one of you. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord your God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom, your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this is a great nation, a wise and understanding people. Well, that's what we want people to say about the church of God. As we hold up the banner of God's law, God's way of life, the example that we set, not the example that our country is now setting, but we need to be the ones that the world will look to and say, Surely this is a great nation and a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? 
as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him. And brethren, as Israel traveled down through the Sinai, down to Mount Sinai, there was a purpose in them going there. It was to receive God's law. And we know that it was on the day of Pentecost that God gave his spirit to us. God living with us and within us. No, can there not be a people that are so near to God as us? Surely. As Mr. Meredith has told us so many times, let this mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus. God dwells with us, brethren, and we need to radiate that and live that life that Christ is leading us to. He says in verse 8, And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself. Not half-heartedly, not be one of the stragglers that's going to be picked off, not, be, not lack the zeal for God's way of life, because Amalek will take you, just as surely as he took those Israelites that he tells us to remember, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. No wonder Paul says, remember the times when you were first illuminated. Don't lose sight of those things. And lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, he says, teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Now, to be able to do that, you need to have to know what they are. But we don't teach it anymore. It's taken, our, our nation doesn't even know what God's laws are. They've forgotten. The banner has been taken away, especially concerning the day that you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Brethren, God's law is so important. And for us to be so near to God and to look forward to the Feast of Pentecost that is coming up very, very shortly, we need, as Paul says and as Moses reminds us, not to forget the time that God called us out of Egypt. Over in Exodus 17, we realize that Joshua wasn't trained to fight. It was a war that he could not win. And there are just so many scriptures that we can turn to, even in the New Testament, that show that as we are involved in a war, you get a concordance sometime and just look up the, all the scriptures that refer to fighting and war and overcoming in the New Testament. I'll just read one or two very quickly here in, in uh, James chapter 4 and verse 1. James asked, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from the desires for pleasure that war in your members? As I said, brethren, every day you get up, there is going to be a battle. There is going to be a conflict. Our human nature, as we read in the scriptures, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We're constantly fighting that. That's the Amalekite that wants to take advantage of us. How do we win the war? He says here in verse 1, he says, Do not they not come from the desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and have and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you, do not, and you, you ask and do not receive because you ask and miss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And then he comes down to verse 7 and he says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And the way we resist Satan, brethren, is making sure that we go on our knees every day and we talk to God and we put that banner over us that we are asking God to protect us and to walk with us. We just read over in a few pages, over in First uh, Peter and, and chapter, chapter 2. Peter, once again, going back to Israel. In verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen generation. You can read that. When you go back to Exodus, we read Exodus 17. You only have to go over to two chapters, to chapter 19, and you'll find this is where Peter is quoting from. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, 
who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. And we better never forget, you know, when God called Israel out of Egypt, they weren't a great and mighty people. They were the least of all peoples on the face of the earth. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26, he says that, you know you're calling, brethren, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God doesn't call the great of this world to work out his plan and purpose. He calls the least, as he says, so that no flesh would glory in his presence. And so God calls, as he says, to be a holy nation, that you may show Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We didn't come into the truth because of our great knowledge and wisdom. We didn't understand this because we had great IQ and great intellect. Even the great minds of this world cannot understand the truth. Only through God's spirit can we understand these things. And we've always got to give credit and glory to him. I think of Mr. Armstrong always did that. You know, this is done in the the name of, of, of um, God Almighty. And he says, who once were not a people, but now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Here's the battle again, the fight. This is Amalek. God says, remember what he did to you. And if we don't overcome, if we don't fight with our hands raised up and we have God close to us, then we're not going to win any of those battles. But having your conduct, in verse 12, honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, there are just so many other scriptures we could turn to, brethren, but God has promised he will fight our battles for us. I think of Second Corinthians chapter Second Chronicles chapter twenty, when Jehoshaphat was fighting, who was facing the Moabites and the Amalekites again. He says, "This great vast army is coming to attack us, and there's no way we can do anything about it. We haven't been trained to take on such an enemy as this." And Jehoshaphat prays. You read that brilliant prayer, very very inspiring in Second Chronicles twenty. And he says, don't fear. He says, God will fight the battles for you. And we need to think about that in terms of the work that we're doing today, that Satan doesn't want us to succeed. Just like in the days of Haman, let's destroy every last one of them. The attitude has been to destroy God's people. And that's exactly what the modern-day Amalekite, you might say our enemy, our adversary, Satan the devil, would like to destroy every last one of God's people on the face of the earth. He would love to destroy God's work. But we know, brethren, he's not going to succeed. And I want to finish by reading just one other scripture here. It's in the first chapter of the book of Obadiah. If you have trouble finding Obadiah, we'll wait for you and you can catch up to us in the last chapter. And this is what we can rejoice in. And here in Obadiah, and down in verse 18, we can begin. You can read the whole book sometime. It says, The house of Jacob, Obadiah, first chapter or last chapter, whichever one you like. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. Only God can do this. You know, the sin that we suffer or experience or do has to be taken away. And only Christ can do that. The only way we can get rid of sin, which is our enemy, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, is through the resurrection. And Christ is the only one that can resurrect any of us, the only one that can give us eternal life. And we know that the last enemy to be destroyed is, is death. 
And here we find really the whole lesson that God is teaching us through the story of Amalek is that it's only as we allow Christ to live his life in us that we stay close to him in prayer and we drink in of his word that God is going to perform this so that we will never have to fight that enemy again so that that enemy is going to be completely eradicated. But of the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Brethren, as we head towards Pentecost, as we think about receiving God's Holy Spirit and reminding ourselves that we need to have Christ live his life in us, let's remember that we need to be zealous for God's way, zealous for his work, being right up there in front, not straggling behind and letting down. You know, that's the Laodicean spirit. And God doesn't want to see that in his people in the end time. Unfortunately, there's too much of that around as it is. So let's think about these things. Let's remember what God did or what Amalek did to Israel. Let's not us become a statistic. As I said, one of my relatives died at the hands of Amalek, I'm sure, over in Afghanistan many decades ago now. Let's not us be one of those statistics. Let's not us be a spiritual statistic of Amalek. Let's stay close to God. Let's raise our hands in prayer to him without wrath and doubting and ask Christ to fight those battles for us as we are able to walk with him towards God's kingdom.